Morning, church. Thank you, Priscilla. I hope everybody, when you came in, you got yourself a bulletin because uh, this is spring break week and the, the ladies' Bible study is off for this week as well as the uh, Awana, no, uh, no Awana this week. But we do have other activities. The, the, the youth are meeting this evening. Uh, next Saturday is a men's breakfast. What's on the menu? Do we know? Bacon. Bacon's going to be on the menu. Bacon's a universal. We're good on bacon. So we may even have other stuff. So probably orange juice and coffee, but we'll have bacon for sure. I do want to highlight that uh, May, March 27th, is a, there's a baptism preparation class. So if you've accepted Jesus, you believe in the Lord, um, you uh, haven't been baptized, uh, we're having a class to... Uh, teach all about that and why it's uh, it's an important step for you. And next Sunday is uh, the EPBC Italian lunch. Our our monthly uh, luncheon is next week. So even if you don't bring uh, a chicken carbonara or uh, an Italian lunch, it, this is hot, this is a themed lunch for uh, Italian. First time, it's kind of the first time we've done that, isn't it, Tina? Yeah, uh, a, a themed brunch. But if it if you don't want to bring something Italian, you don't have to, okay? Uh, one last item before we read Second uh, Thessalonians, I do want to highlight that there's a, a box in the back. If you want to contribute to our ministry financially, that's what the box is there for. You uh, can also participate with us in serving other ways. We are, are looking for some additional teachers. We're having some, uh, some changes uh, in, the, in our... Uh, uh, children's church classes, so I could use uh, someone who's uh, interested to serve as a teacher. If the Lord is moving you that way, come see me. I'd like to like to chat with you about that, and we'll find out if that's really what the Lord has for you. If you open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians 3, we're going to read three verses there, 10, 11, 12, and 13. I guess that's four verses. Um, and then we'll worship together in song. I'll pray after that. But let's read 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13. For when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That doesn't sound like a motto of our government, does it? I, I don't think that, that, uh, that they've, they've seen this. I think someone should maybe highlight this for them. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing well, in good doings. All right. Let's bow our heads together. We'll pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, we do uh, thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to worship here together. For those of us that are here at present and for those who are watching online, we appreciate uh, the fact that uh, we're going to sing. We're going to sing about Jesus and the things that he's done for us, the life that he has made for us in this earth, and even maybe more importantly, the, life, the future life that we shall have in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for those who are here. We know that there are some who are not with us because of a number of reasons. Some of those reasons are regarding their health. There are issues that people are dealing with. Uh, Father, we pray for them who are not able to come and visit either for health reasons 
or for other reasons, Lord, that uh, can't fellowship with us here together in person. We ask, Lord, though, that you would bless them, heal them, bring them back so that they might worship together with us face to face as, as you have called us to do, as you want us to, you want us to do as believers, to worship together. Father, now we pray for this service. May our voices be lifted up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us, church, for a time of worship? Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more.
Well, good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, someone said it was spring break, but we have so many homeschoolers in here, we probably shouldn't mention that, huh? My kids were probably 13 before they recognized that anybody else got a spring break. They get a lot of other breaks, but they think they're, they're due. Every other break, you know. All right, but children, today is Communion Sunday. So if you are in the Adventurer's class, you have Children's Church today, but not if you're in the Explorer's class. All right, so the younger kids, do we have any Adventurers here today? Nobody got up. They must all be on spring break. All those kids that get it. Right, John? Y'all don't get spring break. My kids didn't really get spring break. All right. We're going to be this morning here in First Thessalonians. Thank you for praying for my trip uh, this last week. Uh, I got to, you know, I was down in the Houston area uh, for four days. So that was my spring break. Um, 
eight to eight uh, academic lectures for three days and driving uh, 24 hours. Uh, so I'm, I'm broken. Uh, that's what happens on spring break, right? No, I'm not broken. It was a good time, uh, but we made it safely and got everything done. And, and Ken and Sharon Carr, if you're familiar with those names, say hi. So hi. Um, longtime elder uh, and longtime very active participant in our women's ministry, Ken and Sharon. 41 years, I think, uh, Ken was here. Um, and so they say hi. Um, also, before we get started, we ought to mention that we have some new members to welcome. Joyce Paulson and Marty and Leslie Hess right here, and, and Tanner's kind of tag along with them, so make sure you welcome them, uh, new members here at El Paso Bible Church. And Steve mentioned our baptism that's coming up. That's going to be on April 10th. And we do have a baptism class on March 27th. I think that's going to be kind of oriented towards kids. Um, so if you're a, if you're a, if you're a grown-up, or an almost grown-up, you can talk to me about uh, other, other uh, accommodations there, because we always do, we just have a couple of things that we review when it comes to baptism uh, before that, but that'll be April 10th in our morning service. So if you haven't been baptized since you trusted in Jesus and you'd like to take that step of obedience, um, that's the opportunity. We'll do it right here. Um, and for those of you who are wondering what kind of baptism we do here, um, we do the biblical kind. Where you get dunked, and it sits right under here. Aaron sits on a trap door here. You didn't know that, right? Um, it's, it's actually here. It's unique. Um, so we'll have to remove the drum set to another location and flip that, that uh, cap open, uh, and maybe even the heater will work. When I was baptized, the heater was broken Easter Sunday back in, I think, 1991 or something, and they dunked me anyway. They were real Baptists, man. Yeah, but um, anyway, so hopefully all that will work, and we can even drain the water these days. So talk to me. If, you, if you're probably teens or above, talk to me about uh, the, getting, getting information about baptism. Or I mean, you're welcome to come to the class, but I, it is going to be oriented towards younger kids, I think. Uh, anyway, so let's, I hope you've turned in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. That's what we're going to be talking about. And, and in the categories, right, we talked about pattern replication. That's the, the, the beginning portion and a long portion of Thessalonians, all the way through chapter 3, is pattern replication, trying to find the things that are to be imitated and the things that are commended by Christ, the things that he demonstrated, that Paul demonstrated, that the churches were to imitate so well that they became a pattern for other churches. In this section, what we're talking about primarily is God's will for our lives. God's will for our lives. That actually is one of the number one questions that I get. Number one questions that I get is, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I know? Um, well, one of the quick ways is to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because he literally, Paul literally says that. This is God's will for your life. And we went over that last week uh, in the broad category. This is God's will for your life, Paul said, your sanctification. That's a $1,000 word. It means your holiness, your separation. Uh, people interpret that different ways. Some people will tell you that sanctification is only a work of God in your life, that it is something that is molded upon you by God himself, and you have no 
cooperative responsibility in it, that God simply sanctifies you as you go, uh, that seems to be disproven by the varied nature of the commands in Scripture. There is an element that God guarantees the sanctification because it is a progress towards what we call glorification. The, the tenses of salvation, the, the completed done, the justification, sanctification is a progressive thing, and glorification is our ultimate future. We talk about that in terms of being free, justification being free from the penalty of sin. Wonderful cause for celebration. Sanctification, we would say, is freedom from the power of sin and something that we experience progressively in our lives as we walk with the Lord and as we follow Him in obedience and are filled with the Spirit as we go through our lives. And obedience does play a part in that, we see in Scripture. Glorification is the future. And we would say that in glorification, the simple way to understand that is freedom from the presence of sin. That one day our future is an existence in perfection with God Himself in the new heaven and the new earth where we exist in a reality that I think we will recall sin because how would we appreciate for eternity the glory in which we live, freedom from its, free from its presence, but it will be distant as a memory. That's God's will for our lives right now. If you come to me and you ask me, Pastor Josh, what is God's will for my life, if I've had my coffee that morning and I haven't had any livestock escape and I haven't been stung a thousand times by honeybees that week, in other words, if my brain is working, that will be my answer. God's will for your life is sanctification. And last week, what that meant was, specifically, under the general category, that you need to abstain from fornication. You need to abstain from fornication. That means that you shouldn't sleep with somebody that's not your wife, guys. And it is addressed to men in this passage, specifically, particularly because I think that was the issue in Thessalonica. And the corollary to that is, you're supposed to abstain from fornication, you're supposed to obtain a wife. Simple, huh? Those are simple instructions. In order to abstain from fornication, you're supposed to know how to obtain a wife. My... Uh, the euphemism is unclear in a lot of English translations. It says, everyone must know how to maintain his own vessel. Huh? As if you're supposed to all personally own a yacht or something, or a bass boat. The Bible says I'm supposed to maintain a bass boat, right, people? That's not what it means, a euphemism. We have to understand the figure of the speech, Right? And sometimes it is a reference to one's own body, but that's not foreign to the idea of finding a wife. Ephesians 5 tells us that a man who loves his wife hates himself, and no one ever hated his own flesh, as if that would be stupid, right? That's the general principle. Isn't it? it would be stupid to hate your own flesh, Paul says. So excel in the things they were doing. They were a fabulous, functional godly church, walking with the Lord, a pattern for all other churches. And they needed to follow commands that are simple to state. Don't fornicate, because that's not sanctification. Each one of you go out and find a wife. That's sanctification. 
in order to do that, you need to be educated. I mean, you need to know what's in the Bible. You need to know what marriage is. You need to know what Ephesians 5 commands particularly. You need to know what those things are. The time to figure those out, men, is when you disciple your sons at home throughout the years of their childhood and adolescence. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. I have occasion to do premarital counseling. It's part of my job. It's part of the expectations of my job. Here's the thing about premarital counseling. Can I be frank? It's either unnecessary or it's destined for failure. It's either unnecessary or it's destined for failure. I still do it. But I'm either counseling somebody who doesn't really need to be told that they're going to have to cooperate and manage their money together because they already know what marriage is because they've been taught for the first decades of their lives what marriage is and they've had an example in their own families and been discipled towards that end. And if that hasn't happened, six or eight weeks of smiley sessions with engagement goggles on is not going to fix the 20 or 30 years of mess that they've had an example of. Does that make sense? People think I'm being a pessimist when I say stuff like that. Uh, that's, uh, that's reality. Six or eight weeks of 45-minute sessions is not going to fix somebody who's not ready and doesn't know what marriage is. And it's not even going to work taking their engagement goggles off. You know, the rose-colored glasses that we approach people with when we've decided to marry them. We need to do those things. And men, that's our job. One of the key ways that you do that, that's why we went to Ephesians first, is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Laying yourself down for her. Robert E. Lee has fallen on hard times reputation-wise in our woke cancel culture. One of the most godly men involved in that era of history, as I understand it. And as such, he was conflicted in his life, his responsibilities. But after the war, he was, someone brought their infant son to him. And, and handed, I don't know if she was looking for a blessing or whatever, or if she was just trying to get a diaper changed, I don't know. She handed him the baby son. And he looked at him, and I don't know how he sounded, We don't have recordings of his voice. But I imagine it was something soft. And he said, you must teach him to deny himself. You must teach him to deny himself. Men, you will not love your wives unless you deny yourselves. And you will not be able to teach your sons how it is to both lead and deny themselves unless you're doing it. But people always want to discuss the exceptions. This isn't an out for me, but Paul doesn't give any exceptions. Right? There may be some somewhere that we need to talk about at some point, and if you have a concern, but he doesn't give any. 
Don't fornicate. Get a wife. So that was last week. That's God's will for your life. That's what we're talking about. Sanctification. What's God's will for our lives in other ways? Verse 9 says this, Now as to the love of the brethren, you can tell this guy's a preacher, I love the way he does this. He says, As to the love of brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. But here I am writing to you about it. Right? You have no need of anyone to write to you about this, for you yourselves are being taught by God to love one another. Love the brethren. The brothers in Christ. Fellow believers in Christ. He says, it's God's will for you, but you don't need me to instruct you in that. You're already doing it. God is teaching you personally how to do that. How does God teach you? There's a documentary type movie I was watching recently called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Y'all seen this? Little boy in Africa, not that long ago, through a series of environmental catastrophes in a fairly modern era, his whole family, his whole village, all of his tribe was about to die because they couldn't get any water from out of the ground onto the top of the ground. There was political unrest. People came and stole all of the food out of his family's storehouse. And education is done differently in that context. He's a very smart young boy. Figured out how to make a windmill on a pump out of sticks and a windshield washer and motor that he harvested out of a junkyard. Saved his whole family and everyone that they loved and was around them. They could grow food. And I tell people sometimes I'd like to grow food, but I, I don't know where donut seeds are. <laughs> you know what I mean. He's growing rudimentary items. But I noted in the classroom, right, they have a very traditional format in the classroom, right? Not, there's no feel-good business in the classroom there. Very traditional, very classic. The teacher writes things on the board, and you write it on your tablet. The teacher says something, you say it back to them. Almost all wrote memory at this level. I mean, he's probably in what we would call 6th or 7th grade junior high. You learn the material because the material is given to you directly. Is that how you should expect God? To teach you how to love people? I'm asking for alternatives. Have you all had any other, any experience that I'm missing? Because you know how I've learned to love people? One, I had it discipled into me. I, I learned that from my father. But you know what my father said? <laughs> When I got married and I was responsible for denying myself and loving my wife sacrificially every moment of every day, and I would say, I don't know what to do, Dad. My dad wasn't a pastor. He was actually a very artistic woodworker. You know what he said? The same thing that I'll tell you. If you want God to instruct you, read the Bible and attend a church where the Bible is taught. Those two things is normally how God teaches us. How's he doing in Thessalonica? 
They were functioning as a local church in which the word of God was proclaimed faithfully. They were establishing a pattern to be replicated over and over and over. The, the necessity and the manner in which we are to love each other is not open to interpretation. It's a tragedy, I think, in, in our society that that so many people automatically equate loving somebody with a physical act of intimacy. You must be able to love people with whom a physical act of intimacy of that nature is prohibited. That's not part of the definition in Scripture, right? Abstain from fornication, get a wife, love all the brethren. Those are not all part of the same category of commands. It's not in the picture. Love the brethren. God is teaching you. It's a constant process. He said, you don't need me to write to you about it. God is instructing you. Verse 10 says this, for indeed you do this toward the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. They were doing it. It's an ongoing process. Day to day, there are ways um, that you learn how to love somebody according to the biblical record that you didn't know yesterday, that you won't know until tomorrow, that you won't know until 10 years later, that you won't know unless you commit to doing it in the local body. It's a constant process. Constant learning, adaptation. Different contexts require different actions. Love is most frequently a verb in Scripture, or has a verbal aspect to it. Sometimes it's a participle, but that's the, the nature of a participle. I know most of you probably, if I asked you what is a participle, you would go, hmm? Participle is a verbal noun. It has the subject and the verb kind of in it, and it says this is a person. It may be nominal. It may be saying this is a person who does these things. Josh, you could say Josh barbecuing, Right? They could say that as a participle. In that moment, you're defined by the action. Love is like that. But different contexts require that the same essence of love for the brethren be exercised in different ways at different times, even throughout human history, right? Large portions of the church in human history were made up of three categories of people. They were slaves, prisoners, and soldiers. Vast quantities of the church throughout its history. Slaves, prisoners, soldiers. We may see that again, at least in part of the, the prisoner part, possibly the slavery part. Y'all know that slavery is a common global occurrence. We're still exceptional in that regard, and we still have it here. It's illicit, but it exists. You know, different contexts mean that the way that you sacrificially deny yourself and love somebody in that context is different than in others. It's, it's almost always. You know, I won't even say almost. It's always a sacrifice. 
You cannot love somebody without sacrifice. There are no exceptions. So how did they know that Paul, how did Paul know that they had learned that lesson? Um, my NASB does something that, it, I like my NASB, I've been using it since, since I was 12 years old. Uh, that was because I was told thou shalt use the NASB. See what I did there? Uh, I grew up with the King James Version, but they, when I went to a, a small Christian school, the Bible teacher said, no, you have to have a New American Standard. So we're all using the same thing, and it's easier for me to grade your memory verse work, essentially. You're all going to memorize the same verse in the same wording. But it does something, it's one of, just grinds my gears, frankly. And that is to take the simple word poieo, do, and to translate it as practice. It makes a horrendous mess of whole books of the Bible, one of them being 1 John, where they do that habitually in their translations. Practice gives you some kind of subjectivity. It says it's, it's a generality for us, right? You do this. This is, this is a generality of your life. This is what you normally do. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying you normally do that with some potential exciting exceptions. He says you do that. That's how you live your life. That is who you are. You are a church that loves the brethren, and you don't go hunt and peck and search and, and, and seek out exceptions. You don't do it just enough so that you have a reputation as somebody who's mostly loving. And that's the way we use the word practice. That's the way they do it in 1 John. It makes a mess. But here, my translation does the same thing. This wasn't a habit. I mean, it may have been a habit also, but that's not what Paul is referring to. It was an accomplishment. Do you know the difference? You may accomplish something habitually, but the emphasis objectively on that they did it. They succeeded at it. It has nothing to do with their reputation. It has to do with their production, with their achievement, with their accomplishment. Those are nasty words in our culture, right? In the you didn't build that culture, right? They did it. They loved the brethren. They learned the lesson. Paul knew that because they actually did it. You know, the difference is I don't, uh, I don't practice woodworking. I do woodworking. If I practice woodworking, you know what I get? A bunch of parts that don't fit. If I do woodworking, I get a chair that I can sit in. It's not a chair you can sit in about this deep you can sit on it maybe but your feet ain't gonna touch the floor but i i achieved that i did it it's there you can look at it and say here the chair the bed the couch i don't practice bee removals i used to practice bee removals when i wasn't good at it and wasn't paid for it And didn't give a guarantee. It wasn't their practice that you can deviate from. It was their accomplishment. He says, the thing that you've been achieving, the thing that you have been accomplishing, keep doing that. 
But we urge you, brethren, excel still more. Do more excellence. You're doing excellently. Continue to do that. Continue to excel. Excellence is, is, is something you should continue doing. I think in that understanding, we're supposed to understand that admonition not to grow higher in quality, right? Because they've achieved it, they've done it, they've accomplished it. Not just aspiring to it, not just practicing towards a goal. They achieve the goal. The issue is, is that the goal continues to be necessary and they're to be undistracted from it. Do y'all have a problem with that? I have a problem with it, and I could probably point out a couple of people that have the same number of projects unfinished in their yard. But I won't. I'll just stand here and take the brunt. I have a few (laughs) unfinished projects. I got distracted, or I ran out of time, or I had other priorities come up. Sometimes in the the avocations that I I maintain, the thing that distracts me is my own bloodshed. But I understand that that's a higher priority. Paul says, excel still more. Continue this excellence. Don't be distracted from it because there is no other higher priority for you in the local church than to love the brethren. Don't be distracted from it. You might get distracted from your mechanic project by blood, but don't even let that distract you from loving the brethren. Does that make sense? It's how we work, right? There's no subjectivity in the fact that they were loving the brethren, but they needed to be undistracted from continuing the process above and beyond. That was God's will for their lives. It's God's will for our lives. No matter how big or small we are, no matter how many people are here today or tomorrow or in 10 years, Our job as El Paso Bible Church is to love the brethren. And you wouldn't think that that would be controversial. Is it controversial for you? You don't know? Large part of pastoral theory out there is that the churches are lacking in love outside of their church. Love for people that are outside the local church. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that I'm a bit of a contrarian on that particular point. Y'all don't have to laugh too hard. I'm a little bit of a contrarian on a lot of points. I'm I'm quite a contrarian on this point. There is an as there is explanation and and mandate in this passage on how you are supposed to interact with people that are outside the local church. But the priority from which we are to be undistracted is sacrificial, denying self-love for those in the local body. And that is the thing that we're supposed to excel still more in. If you lose that priority, and I've seen this happen over the couple of decades almost now that I've been doing this, I have seen this happen. If, all, if we reprioritize, if we reshuffle the deck and we end up with people prioritizing above that, people outside the church, and we tell them how awesome Jesus is, how great his grace is, how he offers freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and ultimately freedom from the presence of sin, and we go out there and we beat the bushes, right? 
And we go out and evangelize them and tell them how awesome it is. And they come in those doors and it's a train wreck in here. We have lied. Or they think we've lied. Does that make Jesus any less awesome? Does it make him any less gracious? Does it make him any less powerful? No, but he doesn't know any better, does he, when he walks in the doors and there's a train wreck. Can you imagine inviting somebody to Corinth? And it literally happens that people stop inviting people to church when that happens. When the leadership of a church has failed to prioritize the love of the brethren as the priority God's will for our lives, they begin to invite them to a train wreck. People see the train wreck and back out quickly. Same doors they came in. People get depressed because the people they're inviting to church don't stay. And then those people leave. This is the attendance. And then the bottom drops out. You can't keep the lights on. And then there's no more local assembly. I won't tell you how many times I've watched that. That's not the way this is supposed to work. There were some horrendous church environments in the New Testament, actually. This is a great one. This is the exception. This is more like us, in my opinion, at this point in our lives of El Paso Bible Church. Y'all love each other, right? I love you. I think you love each other. I'm not Jesus. I don't know your heart of hearts. But what I see is loving and sacrificial and denying of self. Excel still more. That's exactly the right thing. Keep doing that excellence. Don't be distracted. It's God's will for our life. God's will for us. Ambition has gotten a bad rap. Ambition is one of those things that can be really awful or it can be really incredible. The issue, the issue is to what end are you ambitious? If you're seeking the glory of men, a psychological disorder that we normally identify as narcissism, that's going to alter your ambition everywhere. In the church, out of the church, in the body, out of the body, in your business. It's all-encompassing in your life. But ambition isn't the problem. The object is. Narcissism is the problem. So we should be wary of narcissistic ambition. But Paul tells us what our ambition should be. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. Don't be one of those people that's not happy unless their hair's on fire. Make it your ambition, your purpose, your aspiration to lead a quiet life. 
not a cloistered life. Some people take that, right? They're still using 1600s technology in an effort to lead a quiet life. In my opinion, that's a way to lead a short life. Well, we talked about this in Sunday school. Farming was dangerous in the era in which they're insisting on using <laughs> the machines from. Technology from Genesis 3 on has been a means uh, that humanity has engaged in, a gift that God has given them to maintain life in a fallen world. I don't think that's right. But lead a quiet life. Internal tranquility, focus on Christ, faith in Him. Attend your own business. Attend your own business. If you're a business owner, you know what that means, you know. <laughs> Stay on task. Do what needs to be done for your business. But they're talking about life here. We read that passage. It says there's been a report. Same church. Same church. Actually, we believe, I think, based on the time that Paul wrote both of them in fairly short order from Corinth. So they evidently didn't get the lesson here. Because Paul then had to write to them, I hear that some of y'all are still busybodies. And you need to stop that and eat your own bread. Do your own work. Do your own thing. Stop being a busybody. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Had somebody tell me that all Christians should be in the trades out of this passage. That's not what it means. Be responsible for your own production, right? Make sure that you are working yourself, that we have a task to put our hands to and we do it. I say that as somebody who has a, 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 at least one foot firmly in both worlds. I tell, you my, I tell my sons this on some occasions, son, boys, you ought to understand that I am non-standard. I'm not weird, but I am non-standard. And that is that the things that I do for recreation look like work to other people. They look like work. It's a different kind of work. Uh, other people walk into my office sometimes and they look through the little window in my door and they see me reading and they go, oh good, you're not busy. I need you to all understand something. I am always busy. That does not mean that you should not interrupt me if you have something because you are part of the thing I'm supposed to be busy with. That's okay. So at the same time, you need to make sure that it's important enough for you to not feel bad about interrupting me for it, all right? <laughs> Please don't knock on my door if there are Kleenexes missing in one of the bathrooms. I don't care. I just don't care. But if you have something that needs my attention, please do. But also understand, I'm always busy. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. It's not that I don't make time for recreation, but even my recreation is busy and I'm accomplishing something with it. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. Work hard. Work with your hands. We commanded you to do it. We didn't just suggest it. We commanded you to do that. It says, and this is where we interact with the people outside the local church. So that you will behave properly toward outsiders. 
and not be in any need. Take personal responsibility for your production, for your own business, for your work, and for your own provision in context so that you don't have to go out to unbelievers with their handout. Work with your hands hard so that you certainly don't have to go out to a bunch of unbelievers. Whether those unbelievers are government officials or not, whether they're nonprofit or not. So you don't go to them with your hand out, but you can go to them and say, you know what, let me tell you about Jesus. Because your provision is met, your needs are met. Recently, that's been a real issue. Many, many unbelievers worldwide sat in their living rooms for two years with their hands out, waiting to be provided for. That is not right. It is not behaving properly towards people outside the church. And that is why we need to re understand the priority. The priority is love of the brethren. Towards unbelievers outside, the priority is reputation for loving the brethren and the fact that we're functioning as a local body. And not going to anybody who has any kind of handout with our handout. That's really important. Because it's important to the reputation of the local church. I, I at least hope that all these people, millions of people all over the United States and all over the world didn't go, yeah, hi, I'm a member of such and such a church and I need your freebies. Please don't do that. Please don't. Perhaps there's a lack of faith and a lack of courage Maybe it's a lack of knowledge of history. I think it's probably all three. You have knowledge of history. You understand that pandemics are a fairly regular thing across the globe. They're as regular as church splits. Almost on the same schedule. Y'all realize the church, church, uh, average church in the United States experiences a splitting event every seven to ten years. You know about how often pandemics come along? About every seven to ten years. We can't afford to co-mingle those things and let a pandemic cause a church splitting event. You know what I mean? We got enough troubles. I'm in my seventh year here. Second time around. I ain't scared. Our reputation as a local body depends on each of us minding our own business, leading a quiet life, working with our hands so that we do not go to unbelievers with our hands out. So we behave and we walk and live properly towards them. So our reputation is good. And the gospel can do its work.
Now, y'all understand that, right? If you go to a big group of unbelievers that are, that are humanitarians, I mean, they're humanitarians, and you say, hi, unbelieving pagan organization, Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. With both hands out, you're lying. You're lying. You're lying. Because apparently Jesus isn't all you need. We're supposed to behave properly to outsiders. It's God's will for our lives. For how we're to live. That's important to us because the life that we live, we have only one way, and that is through Jesus. And this morning, we're remembering what that cost was. There are a lot of people that will tell you that the gospel will cost you everything. That's a mistake. The price that was paid for you and me and for the sins of the whole world was, in a sense, vastly priceless. It wasn't really, I mean, it's hard to call it a price, but it was redemption. They paid a price. Christ paid a price. It cost him his very life to do that. But it is free to you and me. Price was fully paid. No obligation. He is not selling you a timeshare when you believe in Jesus. Y'all remember what a timeshare was? Do they even still do that? They'd call you up with no shame and say, we will give you a free TV if you will ride in a car with us for 12 hours and look at timeshares. (laughs) That ain't free. That's what some idiot calls free. The gift of eternal life is free. Free. And we're going to thank him for it right now by remembering his death and proclaiming it until he comes. So I'm going to give us a few minutes to pray and spend time with God, and then I'll call the men forward.
Men, if you would, come forward. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share in this prayer
drink and remember he drank this cup that all may enter to receive the life of God so we share in his bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice of our presence of grace around the table of the King For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with dismiss? So with thankfulness and faith we rise to respond and to remember our call to follow in the steps of Christ as his body here on earth as we share in his son.